I'm Claire McKenna and this is the Focus Ireland podcast. In this series, we'll take a deep dive into the most prevalent social crisis of the last 10 years, homelessness. We'll discuss every aspect of the crisis, talk with people who've experienced homelessness firsthand, meet people who work in the field as well as experts in the area. I'm Claire McKenna. You're welcome to the Focus Ireland podcast. And today we're looking at why Ireland has a housing and homelessness crisis. We'll be looking at the various systems, historical and current, that are exacerbating the issue. And to discuss that, I'm joined by Dr. Lorcan Sir, Senior Lecturer in Housing at Technological University Dublin, Kelly Byrne, a Focus Ireland LEAP Ambassador, and Rowan McNamara, Head of Media Communications at Focus Ireland. Well, you're all very welcome. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Morning. Thank you. Rowan, can I start with you? One of the main aims of this podcast is to give a greater understanding about homelessness and also break down some stereotypes. And I think one about Focus Ireland, not just the homeless, is that you're a charity that try and help people who are sleeping rough. And while that is true to a degree, you're actually trying to stop homelessness from happening in the first place. Yeah, the most visible form of homelessness is obviously sleeping rough. But if you look at the figures, there's nearly 10,000 people homeless in Ireland at this point in time. And a couple of hundred of them only would sleep rough on the streets. So obviously that's the most visible and it's the most extreme form of homelessness. But there's so many people, families and individuals in hostels, in hotels and B&Bs around the country. And we have a number of... uh, services and housing options in, in place to to uh, help them and help them get out of homelessness. But I suppose uh, the, the key thing we need, need to mention as well is the different reasons people become homeless. Because if you're, if you're only familiar with rough sleeping, you can all, always think that it's only addiction, it's things like that that cause homelessness. But there's so many other reasons. There's domestic violence, there's mental health. There's more and more people just becoming homeless for purely economic reasons. Uh, and the thing that ties it all together, while you have all these different reasons, is is the lack of affordable housing. So you have all these other reasons you need to tackle, but it's no good tackling all them if we don't have the housing supply. So it's sort of like the, the leaky bucket, isn't it? So you can keep filling in the water and trying to help people that have got into this situation. But if there isn't a supply, you're always going to be coming up against a, a brick wall. Is how, how does Focus Ireland work to try and make change here? Yeah, well, one of the... Uh, pathways into homelessness that we noticed was that a lot of people who are homeless in different forms come from state care and what that means for your listeners is is people who need to go into state care if their parents aren't in a position to look after them but they need to leave state care then at the age 18 and a lot of them were becoming homeless and still are becoming homeless so what we did was when we noticed this through research and we we backed up the case is we made a number of uh, policy suggestions and we na- made a number of service suggestions and we set up a the first service about nearly 20 years ago at this stage and what it was was a, an accommodation service where young people leaving state care would go straight in there and they'd get support. They'd be living with support workers 24-7 for a period of a year and all the things that other people can you know, learn naturally, like uh, dealing with bills, cooking, even having self-confidence and a loving atmosphere around them that you need to develop as a human being, uh, that would be provided by our staff in place of that, and then they'd be able to move on. And how we achieved that was uh, by lobbying the government and, uh, you know, uh, 
working with them closely over the years to improve things and to change policy and services provision and put funding streams in place. So now the position is much, much better, but we still have too many young people leaving care that don't get the support that they need because the housing isn't there. Do you think there's a consensus that this is just the way things are, that a lot of things have happened, be it COVID, be it the crash and look, we can't build estates overnight. This is just going to take time. And that's not really looking at some of the decisions, the key decisions that were made that have have led to this and some of the changes that haven't happened. Yeah, very much so. I mean, housing has become a bit like the way people view the health uh, crisis, that it's almost too big to be tackled, you know, that we we need to tackle it one piece at a time or help these people over here and we can't help people who are homeless still we deal with first-time buyers first. And it's kind of a bit of a divide-and-conquer attitude towards it, Uh, whereas you need to fix the broken housing system and you've experts on here who will talk about that uh, from a a better uh, knowledge base than myself, but Basically, what we need to do is is we need to provide enough social housing and that will take people out of the private rented market, bring down rents, and then it will also have an impact on uh, the price of housing. So we need to basically, that's very, very simplified, uh, you know, explanation, and I'm not saying it covers it all. But in essence, that's what a healthy housing system looks like in other countries, that they have enough social and affordable and rental housing and that the, the uh, cost of purchasing your own home isn't sky high and you have tenant security as well. When Focus Ireland are lobbying the government, do you feel like you're pushing an an open door? Do you think that you're being heard? I think at times you are, but you have to not be afraid to call governments out. Uh, You know, uh, there, there can be this attitude that you know, we're funding your services, you know, we'll do a bit, but not enough, you know, and, you know, that we shouldn't be speaking up as much. Now, over the years, that's, uh, you know, we don't shy away from conflict, but we don't cause it. So if there is nothing being done, like on the family homelessness situation, that we had a situation where uh, uh, families were sleeping in cars a few years ago and we spoke up very very strongly on their behalf because we're here for people who are homeless we're not here for the state we're not here for other people while we work in partnership with them and when push comes to shove we'll always go on their side we'll always speak out in them uh, so in answer to your question I think they do listen but a lot more can be done and sometimes you have to maybe bend their ear a bit to get them to listen if you know what I mean because on a serious note you know no one wants people homeless uh, you know politicians don't want people homeless but there's so many different reasons and factors out there and people you know looking for their corner to be fought for them you know that we need to ensure that there's action taken on ours. I want to bring in Kellyanne Byrne um, because speaking of a listening ear, you spoke to the Arctis Committee about your experience as someone who came through homelessness. What was it that you wanted them to hear from you? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, uh, I really wanted uh, government to hear the real life experience of what I've been through. Um, I think that would really connect with you know the real connection of trauma and what what pain I've been through would help the government in order to be able to see what it really is like for for families and um I think that's the the realness you know that 
um, would create change and um, would help like families in the future in terms of what didn't work and what is going to work. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think I think the realness, the realness of just letting them see, you know, this is what has happened to me and trying to then, I suppose, prevent future people from having to go through the same um, rather than just having just statistics and things like that. Real, real things, real life experience, sharing real life stories and, and stuff that uh, even people in government can connect with themselves. I think that's that's what it's all about. And just being able to share of how tough it really is and seeing, you know, letting them see what needs to change. I think that's that's huge. And can you tell us a little bit about your story and, and, and how you came to be homeless? Yeah, so um, as Rome was saying, um, you know, a lot of, of people are brought up in state care and I was myself. Um, I was fostered when I was uh, four months old and I was in state care till I was 16 when I first became pregnant and um, I got thrown out when I was 16 and that's my very first experience of being homeless. Um, and I was put into a homeless hostel um, with my youngest, um, my eldest, sorry. And I literally had absolutely nobody, absolutely nobody. So I was not old enough to go into um, rented accommodation or anything because I was 17. And I was literally just left as in in between um, in between you know policies let's say um and out there really on my own and with a with a baby with a baby um and i was in a homeless hostel that i still had to leave during the day and walk the streets with my son who was actually really really ill he um had severe chronic asthma so i was actually fortunate in in, in a sense that i got to um, stay in the hospital quite a lot but in another sense you know it was awful um, he nearly died on me three times and you know the trauma of that um, it was so tough and just having no family support having absolutely nobody and feeling so alone um, yeah it was extremely tough and what were the steps then that happened that got you out the other side um, I think <clears throat> the fact that I turned 18, then I was able to go into the systems and um, um, help support in the sense of go, going into rental and, and things like that. But um, mentally, I, you know, was broken mentally. I was um, hadn't had the support I needed in terms of living a stable life. And I got into several, several abusive relationships um, um, yet being one I had twin twin daughters and uh, was in a very abusive relationship in domestic violence and I lost one of my twin daughters to cot death in the midst of also we lost our home because my ex-partner threatened the landlord so um, that's when then we literally had to go with the clothes on our backs and over to the council and practically beg to them saying what can you do for us Myself and my children have no home. We're in turmoil, complete turmoil. And um, that's when then we went into a homeless hostel. Uh, 
and we stayed there luckily for only a weekend but then I I then got support with uh, domestic violence and things like that and that's when our support plan let's say started happening and I got in touch well Focus Ireland then got in touch with me so I had like an outer plan but I had to do a lot of healing work with um, domestic violence and that's so that obviously the same situation wouldn't happen if I ended up you know in a house and things um, so I did that and then five years later then my my journey of being stable and supported and a lot of work on myself and a lot of work with my children and we then had a transition on um, from domestic violence service over to Focus Ireland and we were ready at that stage so it didn't feel like um, a drop in the the, you know, a drop into the ocean. It actually felt like a smooth transition, and uh, we got our um, forever home. We got our um, our sanctuary, but we also got support as well. Focus Ireland, you know, they don't just give you a roof over your head. It's so much more. The support, there's stability. There's on the days when you are feeling really really bad and you need somebody there especially not having family support you have a support worker the children have you know support workers whatever their needs like it's it's ongoing it's not just you know here's your house there you go off you go whereas um yeah there's so much support outside of just the home even though that's huge in itself you're very strong kelly you know you can really hear it in your voice and i know people will be really resonating with what you you went through and to hear you say it with such strength is very much commendable and we talk so much about privilege lately and I suppose there's an understanding that that's being born in a particular area or having a certain amount of money in the bank but actually it's having people that you can rely on and through no fault of your own your life didn't go that way and you know I think we all want to live in a society where we look out for those people we don't just yeah. forget about them Definitely. we will come back to you in a moment but there will be people listening now Lorcan and I want to bring you in that are, are thinking how how can this how can this happen and it's great that there are programs like Kelly has described with Focus Ireland that people like this get support and aren't forgotten about but why isn't there enough housing for for everyone what are the key policy decisions that have been made over the years that have had a, an effect and led us to where we are now. Yeah, it's really interesting to listen to your story. I didn't know any of that. And that's kind of, you know, you're a very strong person to, to explain that so coherently and so well. And I'm kind of taking notes from listening to you here. I think at a high level, I think, you know, listen to, to, to Kellyanne and connecting the dots with my own experience over the years in policy, not obviously in, 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 in homelessness and that. There's obviously disconnect between policymakers and reality. And I think that's it. And I, I think there's a lot of policymakers. A lot of them are cut from the same cloth and they're kind of pale, male and stale, a lot of them and, and well-educated and quite there's a lot of Catholic ideology that runs through policymaking. I can see this. And particularly around personal responsibility, there is an ideological approach, I think, with housing policy that people are responsible for their own uh, decisions and their own, their own, you know, what happens to them in life. And obviously, it's not. If you're a baby and you're, you're kind of, you know, fostered out at, uh, at four months or four years, or it doesn't matter when. Like you're not as a child, you're not responsible for that. And it, it kind of, somebody said to me recently, like you know, it's like the, the poor are guilty of poverty. You know, there's an ideological approach there that people have choices. Actually, choice is a privilege. 
and most people don't have choices uh, they just have to, 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 to use what they have whatever resources they have and that whole choice idea that you know people have choices and they're, they're responsible for their own pathways or their own outcomes in life is very much uh, uh, very much a right wing a conservative party have exactly the same approach in the UK it's very much a kind of a free market ideology that people are responsible for themselves and obviously as, as children uh, they're not and particularly when you're left you know you fall between two stools at the age of 17 you're neither a child nor an adult uh, and you know there's, there's obviously huge gaps uh, in the system I think I think the reason the gaps are there is because they're not visible I don't think the people who make policy are aware of this or they're not conscious of it because a lot of policy is around the market and around, um, you know, pretty much middle class, well off people and what they can afford. And policy seems to be directed towards that. And we can see that, for example, in the proliferation of built to rent apartments around the city, thousands and thousands of them. nearly every apartment built in Dublin last year was for rent. They're all targeted directly at young international mobile, that's what it says in the guidelines, workforce. You know, and the average uh, uh, income of these people in Facebook is about 120,000 a year. So it's totally disconnected from, from young people who are, who are homeless. So I think some of the things that have happened, the overarching issue with housing policy is ideology. And they've kind of forgotten, the policymakers have forgotten that good housing policy is also good social policy. Uh, it's also good transport policy, it's good health policy, it's good rural housing policy, good housing, and we failed in all those things uh, over the last 40 years because our housing policy has been really poor. And one of the reasons that our housing policy has been really poor at the, at the social housing end is because a decision was taken about probably in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, to stop building housing ourselves, to stop directly building housing as a state, but to go out to the market and rent housing instead. And that was a move from what we call capital expenditure, as in borrowing money to build housing, to current expenditure. So we just do it every year. We pay rent every year rather than paying for the, the cost of the house uh, up front. That has been a disaster uh, ever since because it has forced vulnerable people into the rental sector to compete with everybody else in the rental sector. You know, people with jobs and families and people moving from one country to the other and ambassadors and tech workers and everybody else. And then you have, you know, people in, in financial dire straits also dispatched into the private rental sector to try and house themselves and now that accommodation has dried up so we're in a situation now where councils are desperately or the state is desperately scrabbling around trying to backfill loads of social housing in the absence of a rental sector you know where they used to put everybody and it's not really working because we can see that the state last year for example we can see that in Fingal County Council and in Cork City County Council so the housing minister's own local authority and the Taoiseach's own local authority in Cork built zero houses directly last year. Now when we say directly built it doesn't mean council workers go out with shovels and saws and drills and hammers. It means they contract a local builder, usually an SME builder, to build X number of houses for them. That's always been the way. Anybody who's familiar with places, they're all over the country, but, you know, Cabra, Drimna, Crumlin, all those places were directly built by Dublin Corporation at the time, who hired, you know, builders. My own house in Cabra was built by Cramptons, who are still around in 1929. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. And increasingly, we're turning towards approved housing bodies to deliver housing for us. And the problem there is that we don't the state doesn't actually own the housing then. And also, we're increasingly turning towards buying new housing directly from developers. So housing that arguably should be going straight to the market for first-time buyers or second-time buyers or anybody to buy is increasingly being bought up by the state. So last year, we know, for example, that... Well, over, over, over the last five years, we know that 
the number of houses bought by the state or acquired by the state has gone from about 11%, say 1 in 10 houses, to nearly 1 in 4, to 24, 25%. So the state is massively getting involved in the housing market instead of building houses. And at the same time, you see the amount of housing available for sale for people going from about half of all housing down to about 27, 28%. So we've made a series of strategic errors over the year. The biggest one, I think, is withdrawing from social housing. If we had kept up the same pace of social housing as we had in the... 50s, 60s and 70s, we wouldn't have an awful lot of these issues here today. But that's probably the biggest strategic error that has been made. And as you say, it comes down to ideology. It seems like we're setting up a model that's able for people that can go and work in Google or or, or Facebook. Um, But that's not to say that those who are from a different background can't also contribute to society when given the, the right support. And People from minorities can often also be at an increased risk of homelessness. You edited the book Housing in Ireland Beyond the Markets that looked at a wide range of experts and the issues of minorities were covered. So what are some of the issues in terms of housing that need to be addressed in this area? Yeah, well, when you look at, at minorities, you find that, for example, black people are five more times more likely in housing in Ireland to, be, to experience discrimination non-EU people are nearly twice as likely to experience deprivation and poverty in housing and, and two and a half times more likely to experience overcrowding. So you can see already that if you if you go to the non-Indigenous Irish population that the issues multiply you know, and accelerate uh, rapidly. And, and the problem is, of course, that migrant families rely on the private rental sector where they experience uh, all these issues. And the, the, uh, even even our own like you know, traveller families, 1% of the population, but they're about 9% of all homeless people. So you can see that there's lots of issues uh, with minorities. And one of the problems is that the Housing Act of 1988, which is the basis for a lot of social housing in Ireland, it doesn't oblige local authorities to house anybody. So Kellyanne could rock up to the local authority and say, I've got a child or two children or whatever it is, and I'm 17 and I need to be housed. And they're legally not really obliged to do anything about that. And, that, and that's a bit of a problem. Now, if they were legally obliged, I think local authorities would probably go mad because they'd, you know, they'd be inundated with, a, you know, a requirement to actually physically uh, house people. What you what you find then is that there's typically kind of legal barriers to to people accessing housing from from minorities, and then administrative barriers. And there's barriers like things, you know, things like asking, you know, non-EU people or refugees or or, or, or you know people uh, escaping war and terror to establish a local connection with the area. Now, I have been an emigrant myself and several times in Belgium and Sweden and different countries I've lived in Spain. And as a white privileged male, you know, it's hard enough to establish a local connection even after living there for a couple of years. But to come where language is quite often a barrier here and translation services not widely available, to come here and ask people or expect people from, uh, you know, escaping war in Africa or, or Georgia or wherever they come from to, uh, to prove that they have an established local connection uh, is is a bit too much, you know. So these are some, some of the barriers that they, they experience. And then you see that, you know, minorities are then overrepresented then in, in homeless figures. Uh, not to anyone's surprise, really. And what's stopping us from going back to the model you mentioned earlier um, that would work better, that would increase supply and take the rental market out of it? Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest obstacle to returning to the, the, the golden era of, of, you know, the state fulfilling its social contract with citizens by, you know, we pay our taxes and you look after us and actually building housing is one of um, it's a financial one. I, I don't think the state really wants to get involved in borrowing money, and that's the problem. But you know, show me a state that doesn't live in its overdraft. You know, we they, they kind of want to be the good boys here and say, well, we we run you know a balanced 
uh, accounts out of accounts every year uh, but like building housing costs money so you go and you borrow the money and then you build a housing now, the, the thing about it is and I, I'm not sure if the government kind of realised this you don't need to fund every house you build directly it's a kind of a rolling fund you can build a house you can sell it for whatever it costs you to build you know typically 250000 that which would constitute pretty much an affordable house in Ireland and you use that money to fund the next housing and you, so you need seed funding for you know x thousand houses and you keep rolling that money over and then if you do want to sell uh housing at, at, at a small profit that money can then be wrapped up to deliver social housing for people who are you can't afford the affordable housing so i think it, it, it's very much an ideological approach again about not wanting to to run an overdraft effectively to put it in household terms that they want to be able to pay for everything up front and never go into the kind of debt like that but that's not sustainable and i, I don't know really any country maybe the germans uh who kind of run their household like that and there's a drain elsewhere isn't there financially on emergency housing for example and other support systems that would be balanced out by a better supply chain well the issue there is yeah i mean this is it i mean it's it's when you don't provide in one area you end up with problems in the other area which is if i go back to my good housing policy good social policy you know if you are providing housing well then you'd have arguably you'd have less work for focus to do you'd have less work for for a lot of the ngos to do you'd have less you know if you if you had decent housing provided you'd have less transport issues you'd have less congestion you'd have less health issues remember there's an awful lot of health issues connected with housing even from local authorities and poor condition poor standards in their housing so yeah it, 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 what what you spend in one it's not a it's not expenditure it's investment and when you start thinking about spending money as building housing as investment and treating housing as infrastructure. I mean, if you think of your house and the drains and the roads and the footpaths and the trees and the street lighting outside, that's all public infrastructure except the house, which we leave to the market to provide. But actually, you start thinking of housing as investment in public infrastructure and your mindset changes. What is the comparison then to the work that you've done on, on an international level? Where is it working and what could we adopt here? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about experiencing housing in, in lots of different countries and looking at policy is that there, there's no perfect system. Uh, every country has its problems. Places like Sweden and Belgium are, are, are Sweden and Denmark are held up as you know exemplars of great housing. And in some aspects, they are really good. Their housing is typically affordable. The tenants have long security tenure. In 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 other aspects, they're not. And the same in Sweden. Sweden is going through a lot of the same same problems as, as we are. Uh, and, and what you see with the advent of the financialization of housing, for example, the treatment of housing as an investment rather than rather than you know a home. Um, so and that's ex, you know expressed in Ireland as we say a lot of the built to rent apartments that we're building now instead of building homes, we're building apartments for large companies to rent out uh, at quite considerable rents. When you st- start to see the financialization of of housing with, from global actors, so a lot of the people who are building housing here, that large scale apartments that we see going on. They're not Irish companies. They're typically American or Canadian companies, pension funds, for example, from Canada. Um, and they're active all across Europe. They're active all, all over the world, but they're active all across Europe. So you see the same arguments, the same discussions. Should we build high? Should we let all these rental units into the country? Some countries have banned them, these large funds. You see the same PR tactics. We're part of the problem, part of the solution, not part of the problem, actually. Uh, you can debate that loads of ways. Um, so you see the same practices and policies and arguments going on in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is the one I'm most experienced with there last week. Uh, and you go to towns like uh, Eindhoven and they're having the same problems with housing, uh, you know, social housing. And then with the market wanted to pile in and make land more unaffordable, you know, sorry, build higher 
uh, and squeeze everybody else out. So the same stuff is happening everywhere. It's just the degree to which governments are willing to push back is the only difference. What about land ownership? I hear a lot about this local authority housing land. Who owns the land and, and, and what went wrong here between NAMA and, and, and speculation? Is it true that there is land available to the government that's not being accessed and used? We have state land for hundreds of thousands of housing. We, we've got well, There's enough zoned land around the country for the last time we looked at about 414,000 houses. In Dublin City alone, I think they have something like 85 hectares of their own land a zone for residential. The servicing, quite often local authorities say, oh, but it's not service. In other words, there's no water or, or footpaths or whatever. You know, that's that's easy to solve. And particularly if you're in the middle of a city like Dublin, there's never, you're never too far away from a water mains somewhere that you can connect up a site uh, to build housing. So uh, to put it in context, 85 hectares would deliver somewhere between 15 and 17,000 houses. Uh, and that's in the ownership of Dublin City Council. So. You, again, I think the the ideological approach has prevailed here, where the idea is to get the private sector to do the heavy lifting for us. And we see this with O'Devany Gardens, for example, and the, the site in Coolock, Oscar Trainer Road, where the government were determined to hand those sites over to the private sector and then buy a portion of the housing back, rather than using it to deliver um, the housing themselves. And in the case of O'Devany Gardens, the council at the time argued vehemently and even threatened to remove, Owen Murphy as minister, threatened to remove funding from the councillors if they didn't vote for the deal. They argued vehemently that they couldn't afford to build housing on that site. Now, when you looked at the site, because I went down at the time, there was 51 houses being built in the corner by Dublin City Council. So it, it can be done when the will is there, but again, it's this kind of free market ideology that the st- the state can never do things as well as the private sector and in housing um, they can do it more affordably uh, they can control the, they can control the delivery of housing and they'll own it uh, and those three things are much better than waiting for the private sector to do it what about the 20 percent that has to be put aside by private developers for social housing is that making any kind of impact um, I can't. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think that was quite about eight thousand houses. We got eight thousand last year. I can't remember off. off or, sorry, eight hundred uh, units through part. Five. It's called part five, and brought in by Noel Dempsey back in around two thousand. And in fairness, it was quite an innovative move at the time to require developers to hand over twenty percent of their their new housing to to the state. The move um, has been increasing towards leasing part five. So in other words, rather than the cap, rather than the state borrowing money and buying the units outright, that they're entering into long term leases with developers. And that, you know, that's like a housing policy in your credit card, you know, where over 30 years you could have built two units for the price that you're paying one and you still don't own it at the end of the 30 years. So there's increasingly a move towards leases. Now, Dara O'Brien as minister has said that leasing will be phased out by the end of this term of government. That's still, what, something like three years away. So there will be thousands, thousands more leases entered into between now and the end of the, the end of the lifetime of this government, and that's it's a crazy way to run your housing policy. It, it's faster for sure, but it's it's a crazy way in in terms of you're not adding to the stock. So part five is a really good idea, but it probably needs to be, you know, rethunk re, rethunk is that a word? <laughs> streamlined. It is, now. It, it is now indeed. <laughs> uh, it needs to be streamlined and probably made a little bit more efficient and effective. Yeah, Rowan. People, I suppose, might think it's easy to, to, to complain and to point the finger at the, the government with all of this. And look, that's true. We need budgetary and legislative change to really impact the homelessness and housing crisis. So that's without question. We need to hold our policymakers accountable. But do we need a societal shift as well in how we view homelessness? Because even what I was touching on there with Lorcan, 
we kind of think the social housing goes over there and they all live together and all the people who can in inverted commas afford their own home and they are beginning to dwindle live over here so all of the ideology that Lorcan mentioned, does society need to sort of shift into that as well? Yeah, Lorcan explained it so well there. And I think the financialization of housing has been the, the downfall of the whole system in, in Ireland and it's having an impact across Europe. Sister Stan, our life founder uh, and life president uh, who who founded Fox Ireland says, you, you know, you can't look to the market to solve the housing problem. The market has no conscience and it's driven primarily by uh, profit. And that's their interest. Whereas housing is a social need. You're not going to set up all the hospitals totally private where they're just driven by, uh, you know, seeking profits because that would be unacceptable. Yet somehow it's acceptable in our housing delivery. And in answer to your question on the society shift, I think we need to get back to viewing bricks and mortar as a home, as a place where you bring up your children and, uh, you know, it's a safe place for you to retreat from your daily grind, working or whatever you're doing. And people have that very much at every level, at a personal level. But when they look out across society, it's very much as you described it. Well, social housing is over there. It's for people who can't afford housing. And it's all, you know, factored into different camps. And often politicians, you know, I'm not just talking about this government, success governments can pit one against each other. And it can be first time buyers this week or it can be buy to rent next week, you know, where we need to look at an overall delivery mechanism uh, of delivering housing that meets the housing need of all. And to go back to what Lorcan was saying, the key element in this is to get back to building housing. You know, if the social uh, housing was being built directly by the local authorities, that has a, that's not an isolation. That would have such a knock-on effect to taking people out of the private rented market, freeing up those units there and bringing down rents and just stabilising things. So I think it's not just the... the uh, individual shift that we need to take in society it needs to be reflected in policy as well as Lorcan has so uh, well explained and I know you've worked in Focus Ireland for a long time before that you were a journalist do you get a sense that things are are, are getting worse at the moment because that's what it feels like certainly when you read the, the the reports and hear the news and sometimes there's a danger in that because I think people get desensitized to it because it just as you say it seems like it's too big to tackle yeah people can become desensitized to it and you can think that the problem is continuously getting worse but it's what keeps me going and what keeps people in focus ireland going and working for so many years is is while the figures are going up we're still ending homelessness for people every single day we're lifting families out of homelessness every day we're lifting individuals out, out of homelessness every single day and we are having real impact at uh, a policy level. If you look at, you know, but it's a long-term game, so you have to, I've worked for in folks for over 20 years, and the thing that keeps me going is not just those daily wins, but looking at the impact we've had on policies. For instance, like the whole idea of the state funding supported housing, which is housing with ongoing support for people who are unable to live uh, in independently in their own home due to different reasons be it disability or or uh, medical reasons or things like that is that wasn't even part of government policy or funded by government uh, 12 13 14 years ago and we very 
uh, consciously looked at, well, we're going to make a part of government policy and we're going to get those funding streams in place. And I don't shy away from saying Focus Ireland was one of the leading players in getting that turned around from a position where someone who I won't name many years ago at a, at a meeting said, well, is that not just Molly coddling them, you know? And we went from a position where someone in the state had, had uh, the idea that providing housing with support was Molly coddling to, that's now official state policy and with funding in place. So you need to look at the successes that are there and we need to just keep working. There's, I don't know a society in the world that has tackled every social issue and uh, certainly Ireland hasn't, so we just need to keep going and keep uh, hoping that we will get there one day. And Kelly, you are one of those success stories. Um, what difference has it made to you in your life and, and your children to have your own home? Oh, it's absolutely heaven. <laughs> heaven on earth in the sense of um, Focus Ireland, I feel, have been the bridge, the gap between what wasn't working and what the government need to do to make the, the change happen in terms of um, what will actually work. Um, and listening to real life stories, listening to experience, as in we're the product of what they're saying, you know, um, what they're giving or what they're they're putting out there. and like it's very empowering to be able to come here and say this is not actually working this hasn't worked this has actually caused a lot of trauma and pain and um focus ireland have given us ambassadors the the real connection the like we're we're real life people we're human people connecting with each other and um they've given us the the voice to be able to speak out and say hey government you know this is not working and um I think that's that's been the most, you know, empowering thing that the folks around are actually listening to us um, and they're supporting us while they're listening to us and they're, you know, creating change in the sense of they, they actually care, whereas government is, you know, mainly about statistics and, and stuff like that, whereas, you know, we're real people here, <laughs> you know. And I mentioned earlier you spoke at the Eroctus Committee and you were mainly speaking about single mums and poverty and trying to end this cycle because obviously you're looking at your kids now and, and, and you want a different outcome for them. Absolutely. Like just because I've been fostered and had have had a traumatic life and childhood doesn't mean that if with the right support and tools I can't go on and live a prosperous healthy happy life and continue on that ripple effect for my children like I've literally within having my stable family we're there six and a half years now um, and it's integrated. So it's not just, you know, what you were saying about the, the block of um, affordable housing. We are literally integrated in with people who have mortgages, people, families um, who have their own house. And like we feel so a part of the community, you know, and not everybody knows our business. Well, obviously, I'm an ambassador, so I'm speaking out as in. But not not everybody knows our business, you know, in terms of like we, we we're just we we are normal people as in we're treated the same we're evolving the same and i just think what's huge is like i've literally in the last two years just completed a diploma in psychology and counseling i please god hope to use in the future all the pain all the trauma i've been through to 
obviously like what I'm doing now help prevent it for others or to help support others but like I do see myself as in going down doing a degree in, in counselling and you know being able to open please God my my own practice one day so like a lot of us that haven't had that support or haven't had you know the 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 family upbringing that is class as normal we can still go and we will still go um and and thrive and but we do need we do need that support and that's what focus ireland gives they gives they give us i call it my dysfunctional family <laughs> they give us that support the stability they give us the care the probably sometimes even you know better than the right supports as in they they, they if they can't help they will find someone that can help us or lead us on the right direction as in you know if there's addiction problems or you know different stuff like that so it's focus ireland is definitely a step a huge step in the right direction yeah you were seen and heard and when you were supported as you say you can go on to do great things part of this podcast is looking to break down stereotypes people might have about someone who becomes homeless what would you like people to know what would I like people to know? I would like people to know that just because we aren't given all the tools that, um, let's say, a typical family, a mother and a father would have given their children, just because we, um, you know, have had more trauma or, you know, haven't had the life, the typical normal life, doesn't mean that we cannot go on and progress and thrive we just need the right supports the right foundation the right um scaffolding if you like it we just need that in place in order and the right help you know as well to to sort out our trauma before then we can move on into the normal living and I've no doubt you're going to open that practice and help a whole lot of people you really will um Lorcan can I bring you back um so many people are talking about the rental market there and that it's a ticking time bomb what what does that mean what what's what's ahead if we continue on this path without making policy change yeah, what has happened since 2006 is that the numbers of, I'm going to say data now, given that people <laughs> data, but the numbers of people in the rental sector doubled over about five years. So we went from, from having about 9% of our population in the rental sector, and maybe students and, you know, people on down on the, you know, on their uppers and, and migrant workers and all sorts of people. And that doubled. Uh, so by, by around 2011, we, we started to have about 18%. And now I think we're up around 21% of the population uh, is in the private rental sector. That trend has mirrored a lot of European countries. Like some countries were always a bit more on the rental. The problem in Ireland is that as much as we're promoting renting and we're facilitating it, you know, the number of, of uh, rental apartments that were built the last five years has gone from about 10% to about nearly a quarter of all buildings that are built are for rent. And for a lot of people, they don't have any choice but to go into these. You know, if you don't have a family home that you can go home to your parents and live with, or you don't have a partner that you want to share with, you end up in rental accommodation, which A, isn't cheap, but B, you have very little security of tenure. And there's very much a, a kind of a, an ideological position or a drive towards getting people to rent forever. And and this is particularly true, given that the number of houses, number of houses being built for sale is going down uh, rapidly. The problem in Ireland is that A, you've got very little security of tenure. So if your landlord wants your apartment back because 
her nephew was coming up from UCC to do ag science in UCD and once you're a parent you have to go effectively um, and in many countries that's that wouldn't happen you you know if you rent the apartment that's pretty much yours unless you stop paying the rent um, in Ireland there's several reasons that there's about six different reasons under section 34 of the Residential Tenancies Act that you, you can be asked to leave so you can never and have does that rent tenure. in the other European cities stay at one particular level it doesn't just go up and up and up until you can't afford yeah well our rent. rent is now yeah most most European countries have some form of rent regulation but it's not about the rent it's about what happens when you hit 65 okay so you're you're a public sector worker for example and you're on say 60 grand a year you're doing quite well when you hit the age of 60 your rents and your accommodations costing you 2 grand a month you hit 65 your 60 grand salary is going to go down to about 32,000 33,000 your rent isn't going to go down by half so you end up on half the salary with the rent exactly the same that is simply untenable so what happens then well two things happen one you become homeless or the alternative is the government has to pony up and subsidise your rent every month now we used to subsidise now remember that rent is typically going to a Canadian teacher's pension fund or the New York firefighters pension fund or something like that. We used to subsidise an awful lot of housing early on. So for first time buyers in particular in the late 70s, early 80s, you could get half the price of your house back in various you know, grants and deals and subsidies and mortgage interest relief and all that. And we stopped most of that. Uh, but we are front loading people to get on the get to buy their own home. Um, and then when they were 65, they could afford to live on a modest state pension, 200 and whatever it is, 28 euro a week, whatever it is, um, because they didn't have a mortgage to pay. Now what we're doing is we're not front-loading them to help kind of access affordable accommodation, but at 65, we're going to have to help them pay their rent for the rest of their lives until they die. And that money isn't even staying in the country. That's going off to New York, or it's going off to Canada, or it's going off to America. It's going to German pension funds, it's going to Swiss pension funds. It's not even staying in the country. So this rental thing is, is just simply the way it's set up in Ireland is not possible. It is possible in other countries for, for various different reasons. But the, the promotion of the rental sector and the rental building, you see Owen Keegan, the city manager, out in the last couple of days saying there's too much of this build to rent going on. And he's absolutely right because if you're building an ordinary apartment block, you have to set aside the Dublin city council will tell you how many have to be three beds two beds one bed etc which is kind of based on the amount of people in the in the population in dublin if you're building building built to rent that doesn't apply so there can be all one beds and uh, so it's not exactly even meeting the needs of the city in, in you know where these are located so we've lots of issues with renting but there seems to be a push towards getting more and more people to rent uh, long term and it's just simply not feasible either in terms of legislation or, or financially for most people can I, can I just say, uh, sorry, um, I just in relation to renting, so while I was waiting on the council list, um, in between the 16 and 26, they were the two um, key years that I, I was homeless. We lived, me, myself and my children, especially with my boys now, they're 19 and 18 now, but they lived in over 13 rental houses. 13. There was no stability there was no sense of security. There was, and 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 it wouldn't be like we were being thrown out or anything like that. It would have been like um, yourself was saying. Um, it would have been the landlord wanted to open, uh, sell the property. The landlord um, wanted to up the rent, and we couldn't afford it. There was there was loads of key factors, but just like literally, thirteen. You know, we we hadn't got any stability or anything, and then each time having to go to the new rental property and provide a deposit to, to provide a month's rent in advance, and the social welfare don't give you like a, a a deposit each time you go and rent a house. You're given one deposit, and you have to make that back up at the end, like w when you leave a house. So it's 
it's it's going nowhere it's absolutely it's going it's turmoil for families it's there's no sense of security for children there's no there's they don't even have a sense of belonging it's it's crazy I've never wanted to bang my head on the microphone more and I've been in front of a microphone for years. Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> and I mean, Rowan, you spoke about remaining hopeful because of the wins like Kelly we have sitting here who's come through all of that trauma and is still strong with the right supports. The small wins you've made, the big wins you've made. What about you, Lorcan? I've asked most of the guests that have come on this podcast, are you hopeful for the future that we can get some sort of handle on this crisis? Yeah, you see, we've been through, yeah, hopeful, yeah. Okay, good question. We, we, since in the last 20 years, we've been through about 10 housing ministers. They last about 19, 20 months each, okay? But the problems have remained consistent. So some housing ministers have been better than others some have been more enthusiastic than others some would get what we're talking about here and some weren't interested but the problems have persisted which says to me that the problems are only partly the, the politicians and whoever's in the, in the driving seat at any one time but the problems are more likely to be the, the civil servants and the policymakers who are there all the time and persisting with the same kind of direction of travel uh, policy, particularly amongst, you know, letting the market do the heavy lifting. Um, and also, you know, not really, I think, appreciating, you know, the, the stories that we're hearing today. And we've got several kind of aspects of, of like policy going forward and reverse all at the same time. So the idea that, you know, we're, we're pushing people into rent, but yet there's no security. As Rowan said uh, a few minutes ago, like the idea that we got, we need to stop treating houses as assets and homes. But yet, you know, we're promoting home ownership, which I think is probably the right thing to do. But, but we've created this, a scenario where, you know, we all secretly cheer when we see house prices go up if you're a homeowner, but yet we're kind of complaining or we're bemoaning the fact that housing is now becoming unaffordable. And, and that's wrong. Like we have all that kind of wrong and it's policy that has created that. So unless there's a serious change in approach by a minister uh, that's going to drive, that is able to drive the civil servants. And I think a lot of housing ministers over the years haven't been able to control their civil servants who end up doing what they want to do uh, anyway. Unless we have a strong minister in there who's able to kind of control the direction of travel of policy. And, and also, we, we I, I have to say that I think a lot of the civil servants are incurious. They're not able to look at the likely implications or outcomes of policy decisions that they've made, particularly around planning and building high intensity and all those kind of things over the last few years. And, and all their changes have just made housing more unaffordable. And we haven't seen homeless numbers come down. In fact, they've gone up since Simon Covey was in, in charge. They've gone up four or five times. And that's only six years ago. As you say, it's going to take a real ideological shift, isn't it? Because I think if homeowners even felt there was a system there where everybody could get on and afford to live well, they wouldn't I, I cheer the house prices going up as much everybody I, I, just wants enough to, to get by I think I think the change will also come from the electorate when they see previously untouched families middle class families suddenly living with a 35 year old daughter and, and her boyfriend or girlfriend at home when they thought the nest was gone and they have the, you know that kind of stuff going on I think it when it hits middle when it hits middle class families which it is at the moment uh, and when you know middle class kids are going to their parents looking for a handout to pay a, an ever increasing deposit for the house and a lot of parents don't have that kind of money uh, I think that's when things will start to, to, to change when the electorate starts to say we've had enough with this that doesn't even sit well with me either but nope. whatever brings about the change plenty of food for thought thank you so much to all of you to Rowan McNamara Head of Media Communications at Focus Ireland to Kellyanne Byrne one of Focus Ireland's LEAP programme ambassadors the Lived Experience Ambassador Programme and Dr Lorcan Sir from 
lecturer in housing at Technological University in Dublin. Thank you very much to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on the next episode of the Focus Ireland podcast, we'll be asking, what is homelessness? And what is Focus Ireland doing to end homelessness? Homelessness is so far ranging now. It is, it's moved into housing instability. It's moved into economic homelessness. It's moved into the more traditional ideas of homelessness being addiction and mental health. So it affects so many people in so many different ways. Please remember to like, subscribe and share. If you'd like more information on the work of Focus Ireland, visit focusireland.ie.